Holy God, we come to you in awe of all that you are and in awe of what you have done for us. In this season of Epiphany, we have been astonished and we have experienced your light. However, many of us are still searching for you. Many of us are wandering around in the darkness and not really sure where to go. Many of us are exhausted and burdened by the work that seems endless. But Lord, uh, we are seeking the kind of restoration that only you can give. We seek that you would lighten our burden by giving us yours. We offer ourselves to you and to your good work. Holy Spirit, illuminate the path before us and empower us to move into kingdom realities because they are all around us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, usually on a Sunday evening, uh, we pass out Bibles, but we're going to forego that tonight because we are going to be reading a poem together. So ushers, we do not need to pass out Bibles, and in fact, uh, you may want to turn your Bible, if you have one, just for reference on another day or later this evening, to Genesis chapter 1. It is an ancient poem, but what I would prefer you actually do is listen to this poem like it is the very first time you've ever heard it. When these poems and these ancient texts were read, they were actually read to people who could not read. So the practice of reading your Bible in church is a fairly new practice. I invite you actually to listen. Listen with your mind. Listen through your ears into your heart as we look at this poem. It will be here on the wall. Um, But we are in this fifth Sunday in the season of Epiphany. And Mary Oliver, the poet, says this. She says that that Epiphany is the season by which we need to pay attention, be astonished, and then tell people about it. So I want to invite you to listen to this poem. We are not even going to stand so that you can be in a posture to listen well. I'm not going to read the entire poem, uh, but I will be reading parts of it. And I believe that it's probably a poem that you have heard before because it comes out of Genesis chapter 1. It is the first chapter in Genesis. So you may choose to close your eyes or you may choose to reflect on the words that are on the wall here. Uh, but I do encourage you to listen with your ears and listen with your hearts. So hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1. I'm reading the message version. First, this God created the heavens and earth, all you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke light, and light appeared. God saw that light was good and separated light from the dark. That was day one. God spoke, sky in the middle of the waters, separate water from water. God made sky. He separated the water under the sky from the water above the sky. This is day two. God spoke, separate, water beneath heaven, gather into one place, land appear, and there it was. God saw that it was good. God spoke, earth green up, grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree, and there it was. Day three, 
God spoke, lights, come out, shine in heaven's sky. Separate day from night, mark seasons and days and years. God made two big lights, the larger to take charge of the day, the smaller to be in charge of night, and he made the stars. Day four. God spoke, swarm ocean with fish and all sea life. Birds fly through the sky over earth. God saw it was good. God blessed them. Prosper, he said to them. Reproduce, fill the ocean. Birds reproduce on earth. Day five. God spoke, earth generate generate life, every sort and kind, cattle and reptiles and wild animals, all kinds. And there it was. Pay attention to this. God spoke. Let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, the earth itself, and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. He created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and he said to them, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, Be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. And then God said, I have given you every sort of seed-bearing plant on earth and every kind of fruit-bearing tree, given them to you for food, to all animals and all birds, everything that moves and breathes, I give whatever grows out of the ground for food. And there it was. God looked over everything he had made. It was so good. So very good. It was evening, and then it was morning. This was day six. This poem is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. So a few years ago, I, those of you who were attending 8th Street, I, I, I told you a story about a surprising and unlikely friendship that I had. It was very special to me. This guy is not around now, but I think of him often. And when my daughter Annabelle was about five years old, she took the leftover seeds of her jack-o'-lantern and she planted them under the tree uh, behind her fort in our backyard. Now, the next spring, I saw this little vine growing in the ground, and instead of having the mowers mow over it, I decided to have them mow around it. And within a few weeks, that little vine had, had these beautiful little blooms on them. But it wasn't until I saw this little green golf ball-sized object hanging off that vine that I, I really took notice. Each day, I started to go out and I started to check on that little guy. He was so cute. He was like he was, it was like he was smiling at me when I would go out to visit him. I treated him like a pet or a baby, and I just really enjoyed watching him grow. Now, some time went by, and I watched as this little guy turned colors. He went from dark green to a light green and then a bright orange color, and there he was, and he was looking up as, at me as if he was saying, look what I did. I got, I got a picture of him. He's so important to me. I keep a picture of this guy in my wallet. I feel like a grandparent. I can see after raising him up why we call our little children pumpkin. Because I, I'm telling you the truth, I was blown away. I'm not much of a farmer, but I stood there and I was like, wow. This guy had come out of nowhere. He emerged from the dirt and I'm telling you, he was just 
perfect. He was hanging on the, on the vine there like a small basketball. And I watched him, and I watered him, and I protected him from those awful mowers and those bugs that wanted to kill them and too much sun. And I was amazed how I saw this thing alive come up and spring forth out of the ground. And there he was, the perfect shape, bright, orange, and he was wonderful. And I wanted to cry when the kids wanted to cut him off the vine and make him into a jack-o'-lantern, which they did, and I considered that murder. (laughs) It was like I had a relationship with that little, little dude. I mean, I love that guy. And there is a word that I think about when I think about him, and it's the word delight. Now, delight is what I felt, what I feel when I'm sitting on the end of the dock at the lake. Delight is what I felt when we opened these doors for the first time after we together worked and raised money and we participated and we prayed there on that Easter Sunday. When we opened the doors for the first time, I felt delight as after we had remodeled this building. Jewish, Christian, and Muslim theology begins with the idea that delight begins and ends with God. And all three of these major religions share this creation poem, this creation narrative, and they all claim that God is, it's like God is in the dirt. The very elements of creation, the divine, mysterious, the sacred is in the ground. The divine is in space and matter in time. But the divine is also this unifying force in the elements and is the unifying entity that holds the universe together. The divine can be spotted in trees. The mysterious can be seen in, in, uh, in, as a bee flies. The sacred comes in the hum of a hummingbird. And the text tells us that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man becomes this living being. One of my favorite authors, John Mark Comer, says, in Hebrew, we need need to see that, that there is this play on words that's going on here. Adam, the man, is made from Adama, the ground. It's a poetic way to talk about human beings and the symbiotic relationship that they have with the very earth itself. We're made from dust, we say, which is why we profess this, uh, which is why we profess this on Ash Wednesday. We're made from dust, and dust we will return. And the very first human profession was gardening. What makes Christian theology particularly Christian, though, is that we proclaim that God is reconciling all of this, all things, not just all people, unto himself, and this comes in the person of Jesus, who is our Christ. God is reconciling all of creation, the whole of the cosmos. Everything, not just everyone, but everything is being made right under the lordship of Jesus. This is what we say. So we could, we could put it this way. Because God has taken up the authority for this world in Jesus, the relationship that we have with one another, but also the relationship that we have with the very earth, creation itself, is being made right. In other words, in Jesus, God is making a world of delight. Now, most of us, most people don't realize it, but the first couple of chapters here in Genesis are an ancient hymn, an ancient 
poem. Uh, one, one expert said, called it a grand symphony, uh, symphony, a majestic, lyrical, and epic prose. And people argue, off, they often argue over these chapters. Scientists and creationists face off over this text. They'll fight over these words like it's a collection of facts. But to look at these words like this is to miss the point, and the argument becomes divisive and just stupid. Because this is not, what we read is not just statements of deductive reasoning. This is poetry. And poetry is good. And when we read a poem, we find out that poetry like this is poetry of delight. And in turn, when we read it, it causes delight. Now, in the earliest lines of Genesis, the poem, the Genesis poem, the writer introduces us to this interesting Hebrew concept. We're, interested to, we're, we're in, introduced to this idea, and it's called tohu wabohu. The world is void and formless. Translation, the world before God got a hold of it is a wild wasteland. It's a place that holds raw materials, but it's worthless because God wasn't present there. But one of the things that you see in this, in this poem is that there was potential even before God went to work. But the poem tells us that God goes to work. He goes to work. That's a key. And then there is this whirlwind of activity. And in the poem, God wrestles with the land and works the land. And then God subdues the land. He tames the earth into something that is actually hospitable for life. Annie Dillard is one of my favorite writers, and she says, she is certainly right when she claims that the Creator loves pizzazz. Because the real deal comes when God then creates humans who are given a charge. You are to rule over the earth. Rule over is an interesting word, it's just another way to say, you're to work. Work is a gift to you. Now, the center of God's creation is one that involves and evokes and promotes virtuous work. All creation, everything about creation, every part of it was designed to work. Every element of creation has a purposeful and functional job to do. Stars shine. Trees give give off oxygen, and they keep the earth cool. Flowers beautify. And yet, while every created entity has its own vocational responsibility in this vast ecosystem, tragically the reality is there. And it is this, that there are humans who have been given the charge to work, but there are humans that are unemployed. So, you know, unemployment goes way beyond just not having a job. Unemployment also includes the inability to work not having meaningful work. It's the feeling of being too stuck or too old or not being given an opportunity to work. And we weren't just designed to do a job. We were designed to work. And there's there's a huge difference. In his book, The Reinvention of Work, Matthew Fox suggests, suggests that meaningless work or just doing a job, just clocking in, is the, place, is the very place where injustice in our world begins. Humans that 
that have no meaningful work or just do purposeless work find that they are disempowered, that there is no space for creativity, and then therefore there is no way to express themselves. Humans can't express who they are in an environment like that, and those who can't express who, who they are are dehumanized, and they find themselves quickly bored, which leads to resentment, and then it eventually re- leads to fear, and then finally it can lead to violence. And whether that be violence of the heart, like I hate the people I work with, I hate my boss, or whether it be out-and-out physical violence, it leaves the universe, the very creation, in its broken state. The Memphis sanitation strike of 1968 is the perfect example of this. Those who were on strike were longing for better working conditions. They wanted fair wages. They wanted opportunities. And they reminded the nation that their humanity was connected to their work. I am a man. The same cry came from Ponca, Chief Standing Bear, in 1789. He argued that he had the right to do the work of burying his son on his land in Nebraska, even though his even though his people were forced to march to Oklahoma. And the most ridiculous thing happened. It took a judge in the United States Court of Law to decide to make a ruling that Native Americans were indeed human beings. Ponca Ponca Chief Standing Bear reminded reminded the judge, I am a man as you are a man. Those who are traveling in the caravan, they have a cry. We just want to work. This week, I got to go to California with the group from the Uncommon Collective for just a couple of days, and we got to go tour Skid Row as as we were on this tour with a person who had done ministry there leading, and people were sprawled out on the sidewalks. I had been there before, but every time I go, it's shocking. And you can see it. There's no purpose or opportunity or way to contribute. It's a place of hopelessness and violence. But just a few miles down the road, Father, Father Gregory Boyle and his team at Homeboy Industries created, create dignity by helping people find their humanity again by providing good employment. They provide work. And as a result, they are the largest gang re-entry program in the world. It is an amazing thing to see. And their, their mantra is this, nothing stops a bullet like a job. Meaningful work is what it means to be fully human. It's in the ancient poem, and the injustice continues because some prevent others from doing meaningful work which makes this poem all the more remarkable. It's like extra good news because as, uh, as one theologian writes, this creator God in the beginning chooses not to take an I'll do it by myself kind of approach to creation and I'll do it by myself kind of way to make the world. But God catches up creatures Along the way to participate with God in ever new creations. Let the earth bring forth. Let the waters bring forth. Let us, he says, create humankind. God invites the earth and waters and microorganisms and you and me into the creative process of making this world. The beautiful part of this poem is that there is this divine invitation for humans to rule over the earth. 
Now you know, but I'm going to tell you anyway, you know that rule over the earth does not mean to trash the environment. It does not mean we can rape the land of its resources or to hoard or to strip mine or to pollute the atmosphere or any other kind of thing that ruins this relationship. But instead, rule over the earth means to create a specific kind of world with God, to wrestle with God and with the earth, to build on it and get a hold of it and learn from it and listen to it and care for it so that it provides and helps the people who live on the planet to prosper. Do you know what we would call that kind of place? Delight. It's an economy of delight that God is creating in this poem. It's what we call a kingdom, of, a kingdom economy. It's an economy where God is in the dirt. And we get to, we get to work on combating those, those things that lead to violence. And we get to participate in mending this broken world. Together, we get to work against racism. We get to work against classism. And we get to work against addictions and definitions of gender roles by participating in real work that matters. We get to invite others to do this good work. And by inviting and creating, uh, we get to invite and create places for people to work. To rule over the earth in Genesis means that we are to, in relationship with God, not not under God or over God or for God or from God, but we are able to, with God, create this place of delight. From Tohu Wabuhu, a wild wasteland, to Eden, translated, delight. The world at the beginning of Genesis is incomplete. There are no trees, no bushes, no agriculture. There's no irrigation. And, 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 there, and, and, in, and uh, in ancient Israel, there was, there was no walls, no safety. There was no economic base. There was no water. There was no sanitation. It was a wild wasteland. But humans are invited to rule over the land. And the implication here is that we have a relationship with this earth, the very land, and we are to rule, uh, to rule over it means that we are able to work it and take care of it and make something of it. In fact, we're commanded to do this. But like any relationship, this original Hebrew gives a, us a clue. And one of the things that the poet says to us is, serve. Now, this is a play on word because we work the land and we service it in order to make something of it. But you know what we find out when we do this? That the land actually serves us way more than we could ever serve it when we do it right. Sometimes we think of Eden which is translated, again, delight, a garden called delight. Sometimes we, have a, we, we think of it like this public park that God has put together, and it's full of these beautiful trees and flowers, and it's got a swing set over there, and God hands Adam a, a lawnmower, and he says, keep it tidy, but uh, that is not what Eden, not, that's not what Eden was at all. It is a wild wasteland full of potential, but there's no infrastructure, no roads, no bridges, no civilizations, and, and God says, go and make a world. And this poem has deep and rich implications about what it means to be human, to be 
human is to participate in the creation of the world. Adam was no landscape maintenance employee. Instead, he had a divine call on his life to be an explorer and a gardener, a designer, an architect, a builder, an entrepreneur, an an urban planner, and a city maker. And so are you. And so am I. This poem invites us to have a relationship with this planet, with this place, with this corner on 8th and Lee. Work it. Serve it. Create from it. This this part of the earth, this place, this, this city even might be tohu wabohu now, but it is spilling over with potential. So cultivate it, serve it, draw it out, work it. This place needs to be tamed. It is wild and unruly. The world is out of order and it needs to be remade. And God invites Adam to remake the world and God invites us to do the same. When you go to work tomorrow, remember, you're not just a designer with a clothing label. You're actually a partner with God. And you are taking the human, you're taking the human project forward. You're not just a mom or a dad getting your kids off to school by reading them a story before bed. You're living up to God's call on your life to to be fruitful and increase in number. You're not just a contractor working long, hard days in the heat or now in the cold to build a house. You are actually cultivating the very earth. You're drawing out of the earth its potential. You're reshaping the world into an environment for people to live as God intended. You're not a student going to class or a light rail operator uh, going to the station or a software engineer on a new app or or a chef coming up with a new recipe or a scientist in his or her lab or a checker standing at your place in the grocery store, or or an entrepreneur working out some crazy idea. You are making the world as God intends it, a place of delight. Now, with all that said, I want you to hear this. this. This poem that we read is not just about creation. Like Smitty said, this is about the future, and there are fantastic eschatological implications here. What that means is this. These are just words by which eschatological implications just means it's a way to think about the end of time. Now, when I think about the end of time, I see TV preachers with big hair promising like the end of the world with fire and judgment. And that's a good way to get people's money, but it's not very hopeful or biblical. The Bible begins with a poem. It begins with art. And humans are called to make a place of delight. But at the end of the Bible, there is a new creation poem that you read in Revelation where humans are called to partnership with God to make this city of delight. You have a garden and you have a city. And in Revelation, John, who was the writer of Revelation and was exiled on an island called Patmos, he can see the future and it's remade. And it's recreated, and it's reordered, and it's renewed in Jesus' return. And he writes about that in the very poetic language of Eden. 
Revelation is just like the first two chapters of Genesis. It's dripping with poetic language, and it refers time and time and time again. These two chapters, re- or the, this book refers to these two chapters here in Genesis. Because John talks about a garden, a tree of life, a river, and he said, in Jesus' return, the people of God will rule over the earth forever and ever. It is like in Revelation that the future will return to the past. It's like a garden of delight, but it's not a garden anymore because people have gone to work and they have made things of this world. It's a city, a new city, a garden-like city. And John writes about that, and we have to ask ourselves, why would there be the change? Why wouldn't we go back? Why not just be naked and free like they were in the garden? And the reason is, is because the intent of God was never to leave the world as the garden of potential, but it was to create a place, a city to live with walls and gates and streets and dwellings and art and architecture and schools and businesses and opportunity and food and drink and music and culture because this is the idea of justice. God's beginning intent that we read about and God's final intent is for us to have a relationship with this place, to make it a place of delight. And we make it a place of delight for the sake of God and the sake of our neighbor so that all, every single person might experience God's delight. This is what I think Jesus meant when he said in John, John, you better write these things down. Do not mess this up because here it comes. Are you ready? I am making everything new. And you can count on these words. They are trustworthy and true. And I would argue that this poem creates meaning. These two now ancient poems, one in the beginning and one that speaks about the end, but was still written 2,000 years ago. These two poems make meaning for us here in the 21st century. By starting businesses and designing buildings and offering health care and teaching school and engineering so that there might be a safer sanitation process, which is the technological uh, marvel for healthcare around the world by bringing clean water or making transportation systems safer or by running homeless shelters or by crunching numbers in an accountant's chair or by nursing or writing or making music or creating art. You are putting forth effort to make the world. You are bringing God's preferred future that John saw into the present. My friends, can you imagine this world Because you're being invited into it. Can you imagine being a part of a, a work to make this place a place called delight? Would you would you pray with me? Frederick Buechner writes, and we make this our prayer. Do I believe in a God who is stagnant or vibrant? A God whose creative work is finished or ongoing. Using the old same materials of earth, air, fire, and water. Every 24 hours, God creates something new out of them. And when you wake up, you think you're seeing the same show and tell all over again. Seven times a week, you're crazy. 
Because every morning you wake up to something that in all eternity was never before and never will be again. And the you that wakes up will never be the same before and will never be the same again either. God, this is our prayer. We long to partner with you in the work that you are doing. We're grateful that we just don't, we are not your slaves, that we just don't have jobs. But even in the most menial tasks, they actually have meaning because you are in them. We're grateful that you, in your son Jesus, is reconciling the world unto yourself. And in that, it is good for us. We're grateful that we get to participate in meaningful work, that we get to create meaningful work, that we're called to make meaningful places to work for others. We ask that you would help us to find ways to see you in the work that we do. We ask that the work that we put our hands to and the way by which we go about making this world, the vocations that we have, actually creates this place called delight. We're grateful that we are connected deeply to the universe in a more intimate relationship than we ever could have imagined. Would you take us, individuals, people who belong to the 8th Street Church, and will you connect us in this way as well? I believe that when you were talking to your disciples and you talked to them about the fact that the Father and Son are one and you wanted to be one with them, this is what you had in mind. So make it happen by your grace and by your power. And we pray these things in the strong and the powerful name of our Lord. Amen and amen. You know, every week I invite you to this table, and one of the things I say is that you are welcome to this table. And the reason I say that you are welcome to this table is because you are welcome to get in on the work of God. St. Paul said this, that whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And it is in ordinary things, eating and drinking, going to school, going to work or raising children, it is in these ways that we glorify this God who at the beginning had a dream for creation and at the end through Jesus is making this creation new. It is at this table where we tell the truth that Jesus on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save took the bread, an, an ordinary thing, and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, he held it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood and whenever you drink this, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. This is a proclamation to us that Christ indeed did fulfill his vocational, uh, vocational destiny. That in these elements, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And even in these words, we hold on to hope and we receive a promise. So we come receiving, and at our church, we invite you to come down our aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We invite you to come and receive communion. We do not take communion here at this church. We receive it because like all things from God, this is a gift. No longer will God be mocked. No longer will God uh, be shut out. But we are full participants when we come to this table and we align with the work that Jesus is doing as he is remaking the world. 
So I invite you to leave your aisle uh, from the left side and come down. Allow one of these, approach one of these, allow them to speak to you and then put the bread into your hand and, and after you've heard what they said, then you can dip, your, uh, dip the bread into the cup and then eat it. And I want you to remember that as you do this, that you are remembering that Jesus has gone and done something about the current state of this world, and yet he sees potential in it, and he invites you to participate. Anyone who is open to this gift is invited to this table. If you long for the grace of God and want to participate in his work in your life, we invite you into this table, to this table, and we invite you to this community. We want no barriers, so I want to let you know our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic, and when you are ready, my friends, you may come and receive this good gift. So come when you're ready.